Okay. Um, uh, is this on? Not yet. Should be on. Yeah, now, okay. Lovely. Uh, so, uh, good afternoon. Thank you for coming to Bruegel. Uh, very pleased you're here. Um, so, we have an uh, afternoon of discussion on risk and complexity in banks' business models and banks' assets. Now, this may strike you as a um, technical subject, but um, maybe some of you um, owned at some point in your lives, in your investment portfolios, a CDO squared or a CDO cubed, and you're dying to know how your investment manager valued this and explained the risks to you or may not have done so. Um, of course, uh, we are in a different phase now of risk reduction and uh, simplification, and I'm um, very pleased we have this panel here to discuss how far this has progressed and how risky bank balance sheets really still are. Um, so before introducing the panel, let me just uh, motivate the discussion maybe with, with a few ideas. Um, financial innovation is, of course, something that was the uh, mainstay of the industry and the complexity is, of course, the result of ever more resources going into the, um, the design of new products. So whereas previously perhaps um, the idea was to complete markets, to open up new um, opportunities for um, risk diversification, um, these days um, the regulatory effort and perhaps also banks' own business strategies are going, going the other way. Um, uh, Adair Turner, uh, at one point the uh, head of the um, Financial Supervisory Authority in the UK, um, pointed to many products being socially useless. Um, so the question is, have we gone far enough in rooting out the socially useless while preserving the uh, vibrance and dynamism and innovation in the financial industry that we need for risk-based financing? So that is the context, so I'm extremely uh, pleased that we have uh, a panel of, of experts here. We will begin uh, with the uh, paper by the Bank of In uh, Italy. Uh, Paolo Angelini um, is the director of the Monetary Affairs Division in the Bank of Italy. And uh, one of the co-authors, um, Mr. Potente, is in the audience and uh, will back him up. We will kick off with you, and uh, then we will have comments from various perspectives of uh, policy and, and the industry, um, starting with uh, Martin Merlin, uh, director at uh, DG FISMA. Thank you very much for joining us here. Um, and uh, following on with uh, Jusina Kameling from the CFA Institute, and uh, Simon uh, from uh, Moody's uh, bringing the perspective not just the debt investors but also the equity valuation of of these um, assets and then of course our very own uh, Nicolas Veron 
um, with a perspective on uh, the broader context in, in risk reduction in uh, the European financial markets. So with this, uh, let me hand over to Paolo yes. uh, and the presentation. Thank Thanks you. a lot, Alexander. I think I have the mic uh, uh, on my time. And uh, so first of all, let me uh, thank uh, you and Bruegel for uh, having us here and giving us the opportunity to present this paper. The paper, for those of you who have seen it, is very technical. Uh, I have uh, tried uh, together with uh, Francesco Potente, one of the co-authors, to reduce uh, its size to a manageable uh, version with these slides, but uh, given the limited time available, I, I hope I have 20 minutes and then now I learn it's 15, I'll probably skip some of the, some of the slides. So without further ado, let me go to, to the presentation. Uh, the idea here is to give you an overview of uh, these L2 and L3 animals. What are, what are they and uh, what, what size uh, are we talking about in terms of uh, 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 numbers in banks' balance sheets? Then uh, focus on uh, issues uh, relating to the discretion that is allowed uh, to banks and financial intermediaries by the regulatory framework and the incentives that uh, uh, intermediaries may have in using this uh, discretion uh, to their advantage. Then there is an attempt, uh, uh, a, a very synthetic attempt uh, in the slides uh, relative to what is in the paper to uh, gauge uh, the riskiness, the tail risk of these instruments. Uh, we go by uh, clues, not really by proofs. There is no smoking gun in this, uh, in this paper, and the bottom line indeed is uh, we do not know much about uh, these, uh, these assets, uh, these instruments, uh, and uh, possibly we need to learn more. There is no really proof uh, of any sort that uh, there is a problem in this, uh, in this environment, and some conclusions. So uh, what are L2 and L3 instruments? Uh, the accounting rules uh, define L2 and, and L3 by defining what they are not. So basically, uh, accounting rules define L, L1, level one uh, instruments uh, based on the fact that they are traded uh, in active markets. Whatever is not traded in active markets can be labeled as L2 and L3. L3 are those uh, instruments that, that uh, uh, are more complex and more opaque relative to L2, to L2. so there is a hierarchy of, uh, of these instruments. The valuation of L3 uh, instruments normally requires assumptions uh, and on unobservable components uh, and sometimes models. So uh, in, in some cases, to the L3 especially can be not just simple plain vanilla instruments, but a combination of instruments and therefore the, their degree of complexity is, uh, is, uh, is high. And due to these features, uh, some of L2 and, and most of L3 instruments can be described, as the slide says, as complex, opaque, uh, subject to relatively high valuation uncertainty, and therefore normally illiquid. This is a first fact that we extract from the papers, uh, some, some uh, uh, figures uh, on uh, uh, the incidence of these assets on the balance sheet of SSM banks. You find uh, on the left-hand side column total assets or liabilities of uh, SSM banks. So the total is about uh, 22 trillion. Uh, these data pertain to December 16. The fair value of uh, these assets is about uh, 
about uh, uh, one fourth, one third, uh, six point seven trillion. Uh, L2 assets are uh, about 3.4 uh, trillion, and L3 assets are much smaller, as you see, less than one tenth of L2 assets at about uh, 190 billion. So the total of L2 and L3, uh, uh, if you sum assets and liabilities, uh, boils down to 6.8 trillion as of uh, December uh, 2016. Uh, there is uh, one reason that I'll go into uh, in the, in, uh, during my, my talk, uh, why one may want to sum uh, assets and liabilities, something that we do not normally consider. So the second fact is that uh, there is not much information on L2 and L3. There are no ready available data on risk drivers, on returns. There is no breakdown between complex L2 versus plain vanilla L2. This is an issue that we uh, heavily discussed with, uh, with uh, uh, my colleagues in drafting the paper. You've seen from the previous slides that L2 are a huge amount. Most of the stuff is there. And indeed, uh, a, a large portion of these, uh, these assets are sort of plain vanilla type of thing. Uh, although they are not uh, quoted in active, uh, in active markets. And then there is an, another portion of undetected, undetermined size that is probably more similar to the L3 uh, type than to the L2. So there are other issues that are uh, listed on the slide. The paper goes to, to some length uh, in, in arguing this. Uh, there is also very, very little li literature, academic and non-academic literature on, on these uh, on these assets. So the paper has a small survey, probably non-exhaustive, but it, it does point to the fact that uh, much of the interest was created in the aftermath of the Lehman default, and then, then the later on there wasn't really much academic or policy-related literature on these issues. So these are facts. Um, then there is this uh, long uh, uh, section in the paper and in the slide devoted to to, to these two things. On the one hand, uh, we argue that there is discretion allowed to the intermediaries in interpreting prudential and accounting rules. On the other hand, uh, there is, as usual, an incentive for intermediaries to exploit uh, this discretion. I could really skip the, you know, the following slides. I'll go through some of the uh, key ones, but these are you know, well-known facts. These are not really specific to L2 and L3. I mean, the entire uh, regulation of financial intermediaries is, uh, is uh, uh, rift with, uh, with uh, phenomena of this sort. There is some discretion, and of course, whenever there is discretion, think about uh, uh, modeling, uh, IRB models, etc. Uh, then you have, of course, uh, an incentive for an intermediary to exploit this, this discretion. So let, we, we need uh, a few a few definition, uh, definitions in order to, to go ahead. Under IFRS, a fair value is the price that would be received to sell an asset or pay to transfer a liability in an orderly transaction between market participants. IFRS also established uh, the hierarchy that I was telling you about, and it is based on not really on assets, but on input used in order to price, to give a fair value to those assets. Some, uh, some inputs are uh, observed in active markets, as I was saying before, they are, they are normally uh, prices. And whenever there is no active markets, uh, then you go to the level two inputs or to the level three 
inputs. The level three inputs, as you see, are based typically on an observable input. What do I mean by an observable input? For instance, some of these instruments uh, may require uh, an, an, uh, a volatility or a correlation, and sometimes it is possible to compute a correlation uh, at certain maturities, but then as you extend the maturity beyond a certain uh, limit, uh, you no longer can observe data uh, to, to compute the correlation, and therefore you have to extrapolate or to infer a correlation based on uh, you know, alternate, alternative instruments. Whenever an observable inputs play a significant role, the instrument should be assigned to the most uh, conservative classification. So that is a, a prudential type of uh, uh, provision set out uh, in the IFRS, uh, in the IFRS uh, um, uh, regulation. So uh, the, the, the um, wording that was in, in red in the previous slide are taken up here because each of these specific wording in, embeds some degree of discretion and or uh, incentive. So orderly transaction, that means that IFRS rule out uh, an evaluation based on distress, a uh, concept of, of distress, basically. Uh, whenever uh, you use fair value, you rule out a uh, liquidation type of approach. It has to be uh, a transaction between willing uh, parties. Uh, since some of these uh, assets and instruments are very liquid and very bespoke, sometimes banks and intermediaries, uh, in order to come up with this fair value, need to sort of simulate, uh, simulate uh, a, a market. Because de facto, the only way to do away with uh, one of these products would be to undo the transaction with the same counterparty that uh, the transaction was entered into. So de facto, what, uh, what in principle should be a fair value based on an orderly transaction can, uh, can be uh, something far from, uh, from orderly in case the assets need to be unwound. And of course, this introduces a discretionality in the valuation process, and whenever there is discretionality, there is an incentive to bias the valuation one way or another. Also, uh, active markets. Recall that active markets is the borderline, sets the borderline between L2 and the other, and the other uh, assets in the hierarchy. And uh, the, the IFRS explicitly states that the uh, active market has to be inferred based on uh, standard indicators such as volume of transaction, frequency of transactions, etc. But there is no magic number to, uh, to state uh, whether the market is indeed active or not. Think, uh, for instance, of the swap market. That is probably the most liquid market in the world. Uh, people in the insurance sector are debating whether the 30-year maturity should be considered liquid or not. It's clear that uh, liquidity is, is present up until 20 years, beyond 20 years maturity, things become discretionary. And of course, uh, this also introduces discretion uh, for, uh, for banks and intermediaries, and again, in incentive to use, uh, to use this discretion. This also has to do uh, with uh, observable versus uh, unobservable input. To remember that uh, the, uh, the uh, observability marks the difference between L2 and L3. If I have a market that is borderline active, I may have a borderline observability. There is, again, a margin of, uh, of uh, 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 discretion on, uh, on, this, uh, on this front. And uh, what about the incentive? 
the incentives are to uh, uh, bias the observability toward uh, actual observability rather than unobservability. Why? Because uh, uh, everybody in the market is pretty much aware of the fact that L3 uh, instruments uh, uh, carry the, you know, a stigma effect. They are, they are perceived to be, to be risky. Uh, uh, indicators such as uh, L3 over total assets or L3 over CT1 uh, are monitored by rating agencies, by market operators. So a, a, an intermediary that has the option to classify a, an instrument as L3 or L2 maybe has an incentive to classify it as, uh, as L2. The same goes for significance of unobservable input. One of the tricks in the regulation, in the accounting regulation, is that uh, if uh, you have uh, an unobservable input, uh, for instance, uh, you know, a calibrated correlation entering the valuation of, a, of an instrument, you should be classifying it as L3. However, uh, if the uh, contribution of this unobservable input uh, to the fair value is uh, uh, not significant, uh, then you are allowed to classify it as L2. And of course, uh, the significant is uh, the degree of significance is not explicitly stated in uh, in a, by a, by a FRS. It is a matter of uh, of assessment. And again, banks have incentives to uh, bring uh, uh, the input uh, into the insignificant status so as to be able to classify uh, an asset as L2 rather than L3. Uh, the, the, the slide here reports a, a limited piece of empirical evidence supporting the heterogeneity of behaviors in this, on this front. Uh, the, 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 the study uh, quoted by the paper reports uh, that uh, the same instrument at the same time is, report, is classified uh, by different operators in the same category only 40% of the time. So an issue is clearly there. Since uh, I, uh, I, prof I, I promised I would, uh, I would skip some, uh, let me go to the, this day one profit mechanism. That is something I ran into uh, a, a while ago and again uh, into by, 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 by reading and helping the authors of, uh, of this paper, draft the paper. This day one profit mechanism is quite, quite interesting. It's described in, in detail in the paper. Basically, it is based on the fact that the price uh, recorded on a transaction need not always be the fair value of, uh, of the object. So I may basically buy a, an object, say a derivative contract, and uh, pay some, some money for this object and then book it at, at fair value at a, different, uh, at a different value. This uh, can happen, for instance, if uh, I have an informational event. <coughs> Or, I, or if I am a market maker and I know that I can buy something with a virtual certainty to resell it uh, uh, at a higher price. So in this case, uh, uh, accounting rules explicitly allow and indeed mandate uh, uh, to the intermediary to book the asset at a price that is different from the, at the value, sorry, that is different from the price, uh, um, uh, even though the price is recorded in uh, in an, active, in an active market. So that, that can give rise to so-called day one profit. The bank can post a, a profit uh, uh, on the same day of, of, the, of the transaction. And, and this thing seems like a, a curiosum, right? That, that there shouldn't be much going on on this front unless there is inefficiency or, or, or irrationality in the market. 
It turns out that we do not have uh, solid data on this, but it turns out that uh, in some cases, uh, these day one profits make the bulk of some of the trading desk at some intermediaries. So this is really something that you know, would elicit further, further scrutiny. Another important thing, and I, and I uh, close here for the discretion and incentive uh, part, uh, is the issue of netting. You have seen that uh, these, are, these instruments uh, loom large in banks' balance sheet, but that uh, large assets are ordinarily matched by large liabilities, so that if you consider the net amount, uh, even at the single bank level, not only at the aggregate level, you come up with um, much smaller numbers. And this, of course, uh, makes, uh, make, uh, makes perfect sense, because most of the times, uh, the issue is that the bank or an intermediary will, will have an asset and that is hedged by uh, corresponding liabilities or set, or set of liabilities, uh, so that the, in practice, the, the risk uh, is uh, substantially uh, reduced. At the same time, uh, this thing uh, can create a LM, uh, space and room for discretion and also to, uh, to uh, overlook the so-called basis risk, which always arises when the hedge is not perfect, when it is not really perfectly, uh, when an asset is not perfectly uh, matched by, by a liability. So, five minutes? I'm, 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 I'm getting there. So. <laughs> Uh, the, 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 so, so this is all, you know. I think nice, uh, nice to read uh, and uh, and to learn. Uh, again, uh, this issue of incentives, as I said, is not really new to this, uh, not specific to this to this environment. It can be found uh, all over the, uh, the the financial intermediation world. Uh, so, in in uh, in the large section of the paper, we try to put together clues about, uh, about things, about risks, about uh, what uh, might possibly be under the hood of this, uh, of this world. Uh, this chart reports one possible, possible clue, and uh, it, it represents uh, the so-called uh, ABAS, the additional valuation adjustments for a sample of uh, 18 uh, banks uh, uh, working in the, in the SSM. And those are the banks where much of these uh, L2 and L3 assets and liabilities are, are concentrated. You see the number of banks uh, on the horizontal axis. The vertical axis reports uh, basis points because the measures, the blue and the red bars, uh, reports uh, indicators of uh, uh, extent, uh, weight of, of the, these AVAs over L2 and or, or plus L3. Those are the blue, the blue bars, uh, or uh, ABAs in terms of CT1 ratio, basis points of CT1, how much do they account for? So what are these ABAs? So the ABAs, uh, to, to put it uh, shortly, are the valuation, as the name says, valuation adjustments that are computed as follows. The bank or the intermediary is required to compute a fair value, and that is uh, given by the various mechanisms and formulas uh, whenever as required, and then uh, they are also required by the prudential regulator to compute uh, the so-called prudent valuation. The prudent valuation is an alternative concept to, to, the, to fair value, and you can think of it uh, as a stressed version, basically. You take the fair value and then you stress it so as to get something prudent. Then you subtract the former from the latter and you get the other. 
it is basically some sort of a, you know, again, the result of a stress test. So the prudential regulation tells the intermediaries that this uh, stress test result must be deducted from CET1, as again, as, as a matter of prudence. So the, the message emerging from these slides is that uh, these uh, prudential adjustments uh, altogether do not seem large, either in relation to L2 and L3 altogether, or in relation to RWA. In practice, as you see, uh, there is a lot of variation across banks, but on average, uh, the red dashed line tells you that uh, uh, these AVAs are on average 20 basis points of CET1. If you consider that uh, CET1 for uh, European banks is, I don't know exactly, but in, in the ballpark of 13%, uh, 20 basis points uh, uh, re relating to three something billion of assets or liabilities is really, really uh, isn't much. Uh, another uh, large section of the paper is devoted to this uh, risk profile of L2 and L3. There are, again, various uh, possible clues of what uh, the risks uh, might be. The objective of this section is to answer the question of whether uh, valuation risks for L2 and L3 is uh, sizable. And the answer, in short, is we do not know, really. So we have clues, but no clear answers. Why? Because there are not many data on, on, this, uh, on this issue. So one exercise that you find in the paper is uh, the following. What do we do? What happens if I shock the value of uh, L2 plus L3 asset by 5%? What happens to capital, other things uh, equal? So this is a crude uh, sensitivity exercise that tells you that uh, a 5% shock to assets would uh, trigger uh, a fall on average by uh, 330 basis points of CET1, and the range is between 70 and uh, 1,500 uh, basis points. So, a lot, uh, a lot of stuff. Uh, another, another uh, exercise which we attempt in uh, the paper uh, is based on simple stock returns, uh, uh, averaged. Uh, uh, sorry, not averaged, but computed uh, over the. 2008-2016 period. And uh, the, the three belts that you see in the chart are uh, uh, plain uh, distributions of uh, stock returns for three uh, categories of banks. The, the, um, uh, the, yellow, uh, um, uh, the yellow bell uh, pertains to the control sample. These are listed and uh, actively traded banks. Uh, the uh, two uh, uh, fatter tail uh, um, belts uh, pertain to two uh, uh, sample banks. Uh, one, the, uh, the uh, MPL uh, bell, uh, bell uh, with, the, with the blue color uh, has, uh, is uh, um, computed using returns of uh, banks uh, characterized by a high MPL ratio. The other one, the red one, is computed with uh, uh, returns, the stock returns of banks uh, characterized by a high incidence of L2 and L3 uh, asset. And uh, the message emerging from this picture is that uh, both the high MPL and the high L2 and L3, uh, L2 L3 banks uh, have fatter tails. So look at especially at the left-hand side tails and are statistically different from the control sample. Uh, conclusions, and I'm finished. Uh, so. The, the, the phenomenon is material. Uh, 
uh, about 6.8 trillion uh, worth of assets <laughs> and liabilities on uh, SSM banks' uh, balance sheet. Again, there are reasons, the netting issue, as I mentioned, to focus on the gross amount uh, and to look in particular into L2, the, the big chunk that uh, has not been thoroughly explored so far. There are issues of discretion, there are issues of incentives. Uh, about a risk, we do not know really much. Uh, the bottom line is that we see room to further dig and to get more data on the phenomenon in order to learn more. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much. Um, so talks about are not uh, prudential models. So just to, make, just to make clear the, this issue. The models that are underlying L3 are not validated. So it, we're not talking about, no, 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 they are, they, are, they, are, they are different animals, just, just, to, just to be clear. Sorry for interrupting. which we find uh, very, very interesting. We find the, uh, the qualitative uh, analysis uh, very rich. And this is certainly a, a useful contribution to uh, the debate that we are having on how to reduce uh, risks uh, within, uh, within the European banking sector. Now, complex financial instruments uh, measure that fair value play, of course, an important role in, in the financial system. And uh, therefore, it is key to ensure that uh, the accounting and prudential treatment of these instruments uh, captures uh, their value in, uh, in an appropriate manner. Uh, the accounting standards should lead to uh, sound valuation of complex products in banks' balance sheets, and the, uh, the prudential framework should sufficiently capture the uncertainty and volatility related to induced valuations. Now, on the, uh, coming to the paper, on, on the accounting side, um, it properly describes IFRS uh, accounting uh, for financial instruments, but it also makes uh, assertions uh, about banks' behaviors and trading practices, uh, which are not easy to verify from the outside. Uh, for example, the possibility that uh, banks exploit IFRS flexibility to either improperly classify financial instruments as level two as opposed to level three, or improperly recognize uh, day one profits on level two assets. Um, now, if you want my opinion, to be frank, I am pretty sure that uh, there are lots of practices of this sort in the market, and the fact that there is only the risk of these practices having a significant uh, magnitude is enough for us to, to investigate the matter, but we probably need uh, more, more evidence in order to, to know exactly what is happening in the market on these fronts. So that's for the, the accounting side. Now on, on the prudential side, uh, as you know, and you, you mentioned that, we have uh, in EU legislation the so-called um, prudent uh, valuation mechanism, which we think uh, addresses uh, some of the valuation uncertainties associated to level two and level three financial instruments. 
via the deduction of the uh, additional valuation adjustments from CET1. Now, what your uh, uh, slide uh, showed was that uh, uh, the resulting deduction from CET1 is relatively small as compared to the size of risk-weighted assets, which are due to level two and level three instruments. But uh, in our view, it's, it's important to stress that the, the objective behind the mechanism is to adjust the current uh, fair values of the instruments, not to correct uh, you know, evolutions in the future of uh, the risk-weighted assets. Therefore, we believe that even if uh, there is a small proportion of additional valuation adjustments as compared to RWAs. Uh, this is not necessarily a sign that uh, the prudent valuation uh, mechanism is uh, inadequate. Now, more broadly, we agree uh, with your assessment that the fundamental review of the trading book, uh, which is ongoing in the Basel Committee, should help uh, in this uh, area and it should lead to a better capture of the complex risks of level two and level three financial instruments and thus result in higher capital uh, requirements that, are, that will be more proportionate to the risks uh, involved. Um, and on that, as you know, the uh, fundamental review of the trading book is being discussed both in the Basel Committee and uh, in the Council and the Parliament. The publication of the uh, Basel Committee consultation on FRPB is imminent. Actually, it may come out uh, as soon as, uh, as this week. Um, and that should uh, help informing the, uh, the discussions in, uh, in Council and Parliament, which we hope will be completed this year. Now, I, I come to the comparison that your paper makes between level two, level three assets and non-performing loans. Here, uh, we felt maybe that uh, uh, that comparison was slightly more artificial maybe than the rest of the paper. Um, now, we, on the one hand, uh, we agree that uh, the valuation uncertainty of uh, these financial, financial instruments share some similar similarities with the valuation uncertainties of NPLs, uh, both categories of exposures uh, also suffer from a lack of effective secondary markets, and hence they suffer from illiquidity. So that's uh, a point in common. But there are also uh, significant differences between these two categories of exposures. NPLs are usually not fair valued, uh, and therefore are not exposed to the same volatility risks as level two and level three uh, financial instruments. Uh, and in addition, NPLs are financial instruments with obviously poor credit quality by definition, whereas the categorization of fair value financial instruments in level two, level three is not indicative of their credit quality. Uh, last point, we, we agree that uh, enhanced supervision, uh, enhanced supervisory actions uh, could address some of the issues related uh, to the uh, valuation uncertainties of these instruments. Uh, and actually, we think that this is happening. It is happening in the US, but it is also happening in Europe. 
since the SSM has been working in this area for a number of years now. I don't know if this is mentioned in your paper. Focusing primarily on significant banks whose exposures to these instruments are the, the highest relative uh, 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 to the size of their total assets. Uh, now, to sum up, as I said, we think this is a very good paper, a very useful contribution. Uh, there is a real issue that merits uh, uh, continuous uh, investigation on the side of academics, uh, supervisors, and, and auditors. And as I just said, we believe that this is you know, taking place not only in the US, but also in the EU, in the SSM, and also as part of the EMIR legislation, which requests say, a more granular uh, reporting on derivatives transactions to trade repositories. Thanks very much. Um, so maybe let's shift to a perspective from practitioners and the industry, Justina uh, and, and Simon. Justina, um, uh, would you say these types of complex hyperbolic assets are, uh, sorry, our legacy of the pre-financial crisis era, um, or is it very much a core part of business models in these large European banks where this type of uh, asset is still being generated and engineered and possibly uh, refined further so that this will be an ongoing problem uh, as opposed maybe to MTLs where we have some, mm -hmm. some progress now. Thank you very much for, for that. Um, <clears throat> uh, I think if we, we're still getting the echo, but never mind. Um, it was, it, 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 it's a very good angle you're coming on, because as I was preparing for, um, for this panel, I was remembering uh, what I was doing in balance sheet management when I was in a dealing room for one of the major uh, EU banks. And um, I was remembering sort of the, the actions we had to take um, with regards to derivatives positioning, etc., and it, it really, to my mind, um, it hasn't changed. Um, we've and I left banking in 2005, so that's 13 years ago. Um, and I really, to my mind, we still have exactly the same problems. Um, quantified in slightly different ways, and we've had the developments, of course, with IFRS. Um, but I think what you have to, what you have to realize is, is, is that we are now, with IFRS and, and, and FASB going slightly different routes, specifically on IFRS 9, we are dealing with global banks. So, the, you know, there is a sort of more in transparency, in a way, for investors. And from CFA Institute, of course, I will come from the investor perspective, buy side perspective, um, which is which is the angle we we usually take. So, I I, th I I think it's interesting work. I liked your paper very much, by the way. I thought it was really interesting um, on looking at the differences in level two and level three, because to our mind, um, level two is where the sort of mass of of uh, of instruments will find themselves, which has the added complexity, because it's going to be so big, it's actually quite difficult for investors to, um, to, to find comparability and to find uh, the, true, the true valuation. So I think we're, we're still in the opaqueness, and we, I don't think we have addressed. I'd be very interested to see how um, Basel will act with the trading book. But again, you know, we have Basel going, um, looking at the trading book and capital requirements in Basel, but we have, you know, we have the accounting. So we have differences. And I, 
I think as an investor, um, this, this creates a complex environment. I mean, we, we had two reports from a colleague of mine, Vincent Papa, on, uh, who's joined EFRAC, by the way, on, um, on bank uh, reporting. And he, he picked up on these. He said, you know, the, the problem is, of course, for investors is to look at what is not in, in the balance sheets and to look at the explanations. But the explanations are incredibly complex. And, um, okay, we're addressing it now with MPLs, but are we really addressing it now with IFRS going live um, and then FASB in 2020. So how, how, how are we dealing with these differences? In, in the lunch break, um, I also mentioned to Alexander, I said, well, Brexit might also have an impact um, because um, Brexit, well, it was, it was the UK who was pushing uh, with IFRS and, 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 you know, does that mean that in the EU, maybe Martin can comment on that, what in Brexit, um, post-Brexit, we, we might be facing? And, you know, the interpretations, we're trying to look at a global market, derivatives um, is a global market, but at the same time, we're fragmenting and we're not creating more comparability uh, for investors. So I think what Moody's is doing, um, uh, one of my colleagues picked up that you're recruiting a specialist who is able to compare between FASB and IFRS uh, bank models. So I find that quite interesting because that is the future, I think, if you can find people who can do that. Because at the moment, it's very difficult to compare. So these points, I think, are really crucial to, to realize when, when you think about, uh, about the investors. And I, I would just go slightly high level here to, to give you the perspective. Um, we do these yearly surveys on what institutional investors are looking for. Forget the retail, because that's one, one step even further. But, you know, what is really important is to get uh, the clear explanation of, you know, when returns are not similar, comparability. That's what investors are looking for, institutional investors, comparability. And are we really getting it? So maybe Moody's can, can come in on there, because I hope you will. Um, I think, you know, leaving, uh, why, do, why do investors leave investment firms? And, and, you know, well, we leave because of underperformance. Uh, so this is the main topic. So underperformance, if you don't have a comparability, again, of where you expect bank assets to be, and if you cannot analyze it properly, well, again, you have an issue for investors. Um, we're also looking at, you know, when you look at the valuation in L2 um, on, on the markets, well, we all know that MIFID has um, uh, increased illiquidity in markets, bonds, let's, you know, let's, let's, let's name a cat a cat in this room, but it's true. Um, so, okay, this may not go on forever, but the illiquidity of markets um, is, is, is an issue going forward. Uh, so again, how how can we get this clear level playing field for investors? I think that is really um, important. And I will stop there because I could go on forever. But never mind. Sorry. Okay, thank you very much. rating agencies in bringing about this comparability, not just between European banks, but internationally as well. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> and, and certainly I'm I kind of very much by the, the last comment of Jacine is about the, the points about <coughs> international and global comparability. You know, Moody's is a global rating agency and our analysis of banks mm -hmm. is trying to compare not just US banks with European banks, but also African banks, Asian banks, mm. and, and differences in accounting standards and regulatory reporting standards on a global basis makes our job and, and those of investors and equity owners of, of banks much, much more difficult. So anything that drives both greater disclosure but also greater comparability is, is clearly a, a positive thing, yeah. and, and certainly kind of um, we look forward to 
to, to what comes out of, of both Basel, but also hopefully kind of over time greater convergence between um, FASB and, and IFRS in, in particular. Um, I just wanted to kind of there are four points, um, broad points, and I will characterise them. So apologies if it's a, a rather high level um, and inaccurate summary uh, of the paper. But I, I, the four key things I took away were that banks have choices in how they value assets. Um, the market participants can't really observe those choices. Um, banks can use those choices to hide risk. Um, and then the result is that kind of the, those type of assets become illiquid on balance sheet. And as we've heard, potentially have some policy and, and risk kind of um, uh, equivalents <coughs> to, to non-performing loans that sit on, 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 on particularly in European banks' balance sheets. In, in terms of our four broad, or my four broad high-level responses to that, firstly, that actually mark-to-market accounting is a very valuable risk management tool and appropriately done is an effective way of communicating the, the risks that banks face. Um, that said, the valuation of list liquid assets is inherently opaque um, and, and investors and risk managers need to, to adjust for that and that's not just because of the, the nature of the, the reporting but also the, the, the volatility in, in values of those assets actually makes historical data um, whilst a useful starting point, uh, a relatively um, uh, blunt tool for trying to ass assess risk. Um, thirdly, whilst clearly some is sort of the theoretical risk of banks manipulating their reporting um, uh, to reduce their risks um, is, is there and it's inherent with any, any kind of risk management framework, any regulatory framework, um, there is limited evidence that banks actually have effectively done that. And indeed, um, our view is that banks with high levels of, of level two and particularly level three assets going in, into the crisis have been effectively able to dispose of those, those assets, uh, unlike maybe some banks um, in, in, in parts of the, of the euro area where MPLs are set on balance sheet. Um, and so therefore that kind of broader comparison is, is, is maybe somewhat um, uh, simplistic and I think um, kind of that point's already been made by, by Martin. Um, just kind of moving on from that, I think we've already covered that level two is a very, very broad kind of um, category. And, and actually, our view is that probably the vast majority of level two assets are much closer to level one than they are to level three. Uh, and so the, the comparison maybe in the paper of taking a 5% a, a kind of stress on level two and saying that, 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 that's a proxy, it's, it's a useful contribution to debate. But I think, unfortunately, what we do need is this greater kind of uh, degree of disaggregation of reporting to make, make that a meaningful kind of meaningful comparison. <laughs> our, our view is that broadly that most level two instruments are likely to be liquid. Um, things like vanilla interest rate swaps are, as we've heard, kind of clearly very liquid instruments. And in our view, across most banks are consistently valued. And, and it comes back to what, again, the accounting framework is versus the, the prudential regulatory framework. The accounting framework is trying to look at normal operation. And in normal operation, these assets <coughs> are liquid. Outside of normal operation, in stress conditions, um, they are illiquid, but then are a lot of assets on banks' balance sheets, particularly in the banking book, kind of the, not just non-performing loans, but performing loans, have inherently unobservable valuations um, ex ante. So, so we think this risk actually applies to banks broadly, but, but the accounting framework is doing a reasonable, a reasonable job there. The issue is about how you then deal with, with stress, because valuations of, of <coughs> illiquid instruments are inherently uncertain. Um, there is scope for discretionary decisions which are different from bank to bank but nevertheless kind of uh, are made um, in good faith and, and, and can be justified. Um, but for us it's about 
the hard to value in the liquid conditions that's, that's quite important. And so whilst there's no, you know, we agree with a lot of the points made in the paper uh, around the kind of the, the setup, um, the way that we deal with this as a rating agency is we say, well, look, you know, banks that have high levels of exposure to illiquid in, in instruments um, are inherently riskier banks it's, and harder to model banks. So we model this opacity and complexity risk or incorporate this opacity and complexity risk directly into the rating. We've got three ways of doing it um, where you've got large numbers of level three assets on the balance sheet. Um, we uh, potentially notch down the rating where banks have high, high levels of market risk in the balance sheet. We cap their asset risk scores, which is an integral part of our rating approach. And we make an opacity and complexity adjustment for banks which, are, uh, which have a large exposure to capital markets and, and, and a, the biggest exposure to these type, of, these, these type of assets. And the reason we do these relatively blunt um, uh, adjustments is, as I said, the issue around valuation of assets is not kind of just about what they are at a given point in time. It's more how the, these banks will behave in stress conditions and, and inherently that level of, of, of complexity and lack of liquidity in some of these instruments does mean that kind of you, you, you need to take qualitative adjustments at times and as an investor need to be aware that that's, that's what happens, that you're not necessarily into it to model um, where values will be in some future state. Um, but just in terms of the, the impact um, and, and just comparing kind of banks with these type of assets on the balance sheets versus maybe some European banks. We, we rate most of the global, the large global investment banks, which have got the, the biggest proportion of these liabilities. And, and taking, looking at level three and level two assets, since 2008, level three assets have come down from one trillion, this, this group of uh, about 13 largest um, investment banks, to around 200 billion today, this is US dollars. So they've come down by 80%. Level two assets, haven't come down by as much, but they've gone from 15 trillion US down to 7 trillion. So the idea that there is a big shift of level three assets into level two, um, we, we're not able to pick up clearly the, the, the starting point is different in an order of magnitude. But, but the, the broad trend is that banks have been able to manage down these portfolios relatively straightforward manner. And even and Gibbs in the EU are now uh, approaching the end of their, their non-core units. Most are expected to close by the end of this year. Value at risk is a quarter of what it was at the start of the crisis. So the, this kind of tail risk, unlike some other parts of banks' balance sheets, has been able to be dealt with in kind of uh, uh, over time. So these instruments are able to be disposed of. Um, and our expectation, as I said, in, in normal time, the level two valuations are ex expected to be close to, to what market values would actually be, whereas level three is very different. We kind of, there is no meaningful way of, of, of an outsider understanding kind of whether they're right or, or wrong. Um, so kind of just to conclude, I think as already been mentioned, um, non-performing loans, bad assets kind of are kind of not marked to market. Um, they weigh on balance sheets. They um, are kind of hinder economic growth, take a lot of management time. Um, we think that we think that is very, very different from level two or level three assets, which tend to be good performing assets, which add to the bank's profitability. Um, these type of uh, assets are now much safer because we've got kind of central clearing, um, we've got uh, clearer margining requirements. Uh, banks have changed their business models to very much focus on customer flow business rather than taking proprietary positions. Um, and so kind of we, we think there's a, a big difference um, in order of 
impact between non-performing loans and, and these level two, level three assets. Um, in terms of non-performing loans, we believe that capitalization and provisioning is the, the key to unlocking that. Um, but, but broadly, kind of coming back to the overall thrust of the paper, yeah, we certainly do need, in order to better understand the level two assets issue, kind of much greater um, transparency between the different types of assets on, on balance sheets and potentially be able to disaggregate that group into, into two, two separate kind of buckets at least. Um, but for the evidence we've got thus far is actually they're not, the, the impact on banks operating models are very different in terms of these, these kind of uh, uh, mark to value assets, than, sorry, model to value assets than, than, than uh, MPLs. Okay, thanks very much. So uh, that's quite reassuring then. Uh, maybe we give Nicholas the final opportunity. Maybe my, my question would be, uh, are you similarly um, at ease with the sort of uh, view that emerges here from Simon that regulation has moved European banks in the right direction of, of rooting out this complexity and the risks in, in here and in, in that type of excess in financial innovation? Thank you, and uh, I know Martin has to leave us quite soon, so I'll try to be extremely brief, but uh, I don't think Simon implied that uh, complexity had been rooted out. Um, uh, and to come back to your framing at the beginning, Alex, uh, I think banks in a complex financial system, and thanks God our financial system is complex because our economy is complex and advanced, uh, there will always be complex to value assets, so they're a feature of the system, they're not a bug. Uh, you mentioned Adair Turner about social usefulness. I'm not sure he would say that today. Uh, I think that was, uh, in a way, a very dated comment uh, on you know, the all-knowing capacity of regulators to make the difference between good and bad finance. I think he has more nuanced view now, uh, and I certainly would have more nuanced view about you know, the, the philosopher king uh, conception of the financial regulator. So I think we have to accept that market practices uh, involve a lot of complexity, uh, we don't have, you know, the kind of Stone Age financial system uh, the, to serve our economy. We have a more advanced, more complex, more uh, difficult-to-value uh, set of instruments, and I view that, again, as a, a feature, not a bug. Um, now, on the paper and the argument, uh, yes, I concur a lot with Simon said. Actually, Simon said most of what I was intending to say, so I'm not going to repeat it. Uh, I think the, the, the paper is very useful to point to the issues uh, raised by uh, level two, level three assets. Uh, it's a good contribution. It's not the first contribution. I think Josina very rightly mentioned the excellent work that the CFA Institute um, has produced on this, especially Vincent Pe Papa, through a series of papers. I think these should, if I may, have been uh, in your reference list because they're really important contributions from a practitioner's perspective uh, on, uh, on what complex banks are doing, and, and Vincent uh, has a very critical eye on this. So it's, uh, it comes from the industry, but it's not complacent uh, observation by the industry. Uh, and, um, and as you said, Josina, uh, the CFA Institute uh, pretty consistently represents uh, the uh, uh, users as a, the buy side. Uh, in that divide, so, so I think uh, it's an important contribution. I used to be on a committee of the CFA Institute for disclosure, but I no longer am, so uh, no, no connections there. Um, and, and, and I agree 
with one point that was made very clearly by Simon and I think also by Martin, that level two and level three are really not the same thing. And to me, methodologically, the main feedback I have on the paper is that it doesn't discriminate enough between level two and level three. And you explained a bit why uh, and the fuzzy boundary issue, but I think you know, most level two assets are things you can hedge, are things you can sell, uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and that makes a big difference, uh, again, uh, particularly with NPLs, but also with level three. Um, now, being a policy person, I will just say a few things about the policy implications of all this. Uh, I think, so policy implication, I think we have a, a certain level of consensus here, so far as I can tell, that, you know, uh, different issues are different. So the NPL's issue is a big issue, the level two, level three issue is an issue that requires attention, they're not the same. Uh, there is a bit of, uh, um, I, I thought a bit of confusing message in chart 10 of the paper because uh, it shows the same bell curve, but without much analysis of causality and different bank profiles and what should come with that. So, so I, for one, don't infer from that uh, chart that uh, level two, level three are as risky as NPLs, and I don't think the paper does either, but I think there could be room for confusion there. Um, the accounting standard setting is not really questioned by the paper unless I read it wrongly, and I wouldn't question it either because I think any accounting standard for these kind of assets uh, leaves room for judgment and for uh, modeling and for things like that. So, so I, I think as a first order observation, IFRS 9 and the other accounting standards that are involved in this, you know, uh, are basically the worst solution with the exception of all others, right? I mean, it's not uh, an exact science, it's not perfect, but that's again uh, inherent in the system. Prudential filters, we can discuss. You, you, you had this very interesting chart on AVAs. I have sympathy with Martin's uh, take on it, which is that the filter actually creates an incentive for rigor in the fair value uh, measurement and, 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 and therefore not necessarily something sinister, but I thought the chart was very thought-provoking, so I think it's one of the, the big value added of the paper. Um, I think, however, where we have most to work in the European context, and I'm not coming to issues of global consistency and global harmonization, including between the US and uh, IFRS land, uh, because uh, we know how difficult it is to move these things, but uh, at a more practical level inside the European Union, I think it's a fact, even so the paper doesn't really enter into the detail of this, that we can do better in terms of consistency of IFRS implementation and enforcement practices. And actually, the Commission is moving in that direction in my uh, reading with the ESA's review, the strengthening of instruments of supervisory convergence, especially in the context of ESMA, uh, creates laser groundwork, even so it's not accounting enforcement is not a focus of this uh, proposed legislation, which is now being discussed. Uh, the ESA's review creates a groundwork for a more authoritative role of ESMA in terms of having more consistency of accounting enforcement practices by national regulators, or even maybe one day direct, I mean, I've been advocating this for more than a decade, so I'm on record, uh, having something like a European, uh, an office of a European chief accountant uh, that would, uh, of course, keep the relationship into different member states, but have a much higher degree of consistency of enforcement practices than we have now, precisely because IFRS uh, leaves so much scope for judgment. And, and, and I think uh, we can make progress on this and we should make progress on this. And the last point, which is in the same vein, 
is that I think in terms of auditor supervision and audit quality regulation per se, despite the progress we can discuss of the recent legislation that was adopted a couple of years ago uh, on uh, auditing, uh, there is a lot to be done, also in the broader context signaled by the ESA's review to have more consistent supervision of auditors, also learning from some good aspects of the U.S. experience, not learning from the bad aspects of the U.S. experience, uh, in terms of uh, having more rigorous supervision of the audit market. We know that the audit market is somewhat dysfunctional from a competitive perspective. It's a big four. It's a problem. Nobody knows how to solve that competition problem. But we can, to a certain extent, mitigate this through better supervision. And here, uh, as with IFRS enforcement, I see a huge scope for uh, improvement in the European Union going forward. Again, it's not the main focus of the paper in the policy analysis, but I think the paper should stimulate us to think ahead on how we could uh, do better on this front. Thank you again. Thanks very much, Nicholas. Okay, uh, well, let's open this up uh, to the audience. Um, if you have a few more minutes uh, before you need to go, maybe questions to uh, Mr. Merlin first. And yeah, uh, unless you have an immediate response. Yeah. Just, uh, no, it's, it's just because <clears throat> a colleague of mine in the US picked up a paper by Barclays uh, Group where they looked at, uh, which was published right now in the beginning of 2018, uh, looking at the impact of IFRS 9. Uh, and they said that they immediately saw the jump between December 17 to January 2018, a 58% increase in impairment allowance and provisioning. So that is quite significant as a number. Uh, so anyway, that was a compliment of information I forgot about. There you go. <laughs> so, uh, questions from, from the audience? Actually, in your presentation, you mentioned the booking of day one profits as a potential problem. And the question, of course, is not whether there is discretion, but whether in the, in the assessment of the financial instruments, but whether this is systematically tilted towards a higher uh, valuation, whether, there is, um, whether it's misused, basically, the discretion. Now, I was wondering if, um, let's say, if there is... Um, this sort of bias, if profits are systematically overbooked on day one, what you should see over time is that if these assumptions do not realize that there should be on day X um, a loss, exactly. And, and so basically looking at the um, timeline should disclose whether there is some sort of systematic overvaluation or whether this... Um, is not the case. Is that a line that you could basically um, have a look at in, in, your, in your research? Uh, not necessarily. Two things. First, uh, uh, and I'll let Francesco, Francesco chip in uh, in case he wants to. Uh, we do not have much information about this. So having a time series about day one profits, I don't even have a point uh, on this unless I go to the details of the contractual uh, papers that Christina was, uh, was mentioning. We, I haven't done it. I don't think my co-authors uh, have done it. So it is, it is hard. And uh, having this information would be very useful. Indeed, I think the paper presents uh, 
very exhaustive survey of what you can get about this world without uh, the sweat of your brow, without going into you know, individual contracts or, or uh, very detailed uh, um, uh, accounting, accounting issues. Concerning the, your, uh, your hypothesis, it's uh, indeed suggestive. However, let me give you a counterexample. Suppose that I drive without, uh, without uh, an insurance, and then uh, I don't hit anybody. Uh, by the end of the year, you know, I make no losses and uh, I just hide the risk. I don't insure against that risk and uh, therefore I will not have uh, uh, a loss any time uh, along the road. So an issue here can be uh, of, of hiding risk, neglected risk. Uh, the issue is how large is it? We don't know. Uh, I've heard uh, uh, Nicholas and Simon saying, in my opinion, uh, most of L2 are <coughs> like L1. Fair. Uh, we discussed this uh, a lot in drafting the paper. What, what should we say about this? Is this 10%, 15%, 50%? Large, medium, small? We didn't know. So we said an unknown but uh, possibly non-negligible share of L2 may be similar to L3. But the issue is we don't know. I think uh, the bottom line of the paper is uh, we, this ignorance uh, should be you know, eliminated. I mean, uh, in level two class uh, can be included instruments similar to level one, it's true. We, based also on uh, supervisory experience, uh, we found some uh, ITRAX index, and uh, that's uh, quoted and uh, no problem. But uh, we have also some uh, other instruments, uh, more complex, such as, uh, let me mention, uh, SKU notes, or uh, credit link notes, based on correlation, and uh, I mean, uh, the problem is uh, if we had the capacity to discriminate between the, this, I mean, uh, section of level two, level two star, we could also have the possibility to introduce new ratios useful also for uh, assessing the, I mean, the risk of uh, an institution. And uh, that's uh, the first uh, contribution. The second one is that uh, um, in similar manner, we do not have enough information about the one. The one disclosure requirements are, you know, very few. You have, uh, if I'm not wrong, uh, only the uh, a disclosure requirement when you relieve the one from L3 whenever the input becomes observable. So you have the possibility to relieve the, the one. In this <coughs> case, you have to the obligation to disclose the amount of the one. But in other cases, uh, is one of the claim of the paper we, that we do not have enough, uh, I mean, information from uh, an off-site perspective. Thanks. Okay. Thanks very much. Um, other questions? Yeah. In the, in the Hi, uh, I'm Barbara Mainieri. I'm a fixed income analyst at Bank the Growth. And I have a question as investor, and it's why I should have been more scared to invest in a bank with MPLs, and MPLs which are already provisioned, there are more stricter rules, and um, I'd be, let's say, more happy to invest in a big name with very low MPLs, but 
big, uh, let's say, portfolio of L2, L3 asset. Because sometimes I have the impression that we underestimate the, the problem that level two and level three asset really uh, are. Because MPLs at the end is something provision. Level two, level three asset is something that can be used to overestimate, <laughs> let's say, asset, underestimate liabilities, and so overestimate equity. And I would understand, so why I should be uh, more scared yes. about uh, MPL than level two and level uh, three? If I can add, uh, so Nicholas raised his hand, so maybe Simon or Jacina may want to come in. The issues around Deutsche Bank uh, surely should be mentioned. Is that is that an example of an L3, L2 business model gone wrong, or is this just the market not? Uh, Functioning properly in, in uh, thinking through the true value of the bank. Yeah, and I think yeah. it's, it, 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 it really is that point that it's you can't draw broad brush conclusions and say I'd rather I'd rather invest in a bank with capital market activity versus one with kind of doing normal you know, lending and uh, taking deposits and lending. Yeah. There are an awful lot of banks in Europe out there which do lending and they they've got small relatively small levels of non-performing loans. They work very well provisioned. And our ratings reflect that, and we have those kind of uh, banks in, in the Nordics where you've got our, our standalone baseline credit assessment, which is our measure of standalone kind of uh, uh, financial strength, is in our kind of single A category. Whereas Deutsche, as has been alluded to, is, is down at BA1, and that's because of their exposure to financial markets and our view of how well they've ex managed those exposures. But not all banks within that space are equal. Um, and, you know, so if you compare, say, Deutsche in Europe versus Goldman in the US, you've got quite a, a, a big difference in their ability to effectively manage their risk position. That said, we don't believe banks with large capital market activity are ever going to be as risk-free as a very well-run bank with low, low MPLs. The issue we have with banks with large, value, large volumes of MPLs on their balance sheets is that I think there are still question marks around the level of provisioning and the degree of capitalization of those banks. And kind of what we've seen is the, the banks in certain, particularly a number of jurisdictions, the difficulty they've had in disposing those, those assets. And that's principally been driven, in our opinion, by the amount of capital that banks are holding and their inability to take, book a loss. So I think that's, for us, it's not about the, the central case. Central case is lending is a safer business, but kind of the degree of, um, the, the, the degree of risk from MPLs is different from, from that of capital market activity. The view of, on MPLs is worse than the view on level two or level three asset yet. Okay. When well, doing analysis and yeah. also reading, we, uh, uh, yeah. Can we pass for, this on to, yeah. to the other panelists? Yeah, yeah no, I, I think the, the reason for that, I, again, I have too much conversion to assignment for this reason. <laughs> uh, but the reason is, put simply, is that L2 and L3 assets inherently are performing assets, while NPLs are non-performing assets. And that's a big difference. Uh, you cannot treat them the same way. So uh, I think it would be an exaggeration to say that the issues about valuation and measurement on Deutsche Bank's balance sheet have completely escaped the attention of the marketplace. I think there has been a lot of market attention on Deutsche Bank. 
uh, at least so far as I can say. Now, I'm not going to go into much detail on Deutsche Bank, not just because it's a Google <coughs> sponsor, but also because I haven't done my homework uh, on this. But, uh, but I think, uh, you know, uh, it's a bank that has been under a lot of spotlight over the last two, three years. Conversely, uh, I took from your questions that you were assuming that provisions on NPLs were uh, sufficient, uh, and we've seen time Exist. and again that right. this was not the case on a number of banks in the Eurozone. So if we had a guarantee from, you know, uh, 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 somewhere that the provisions are sufficient and NPLs are fine, uh, they're actually very well treat uh, favorably treated when provisioned uh, in the supervisory framework, uh, but, uh, but I think the issue is really about the level of provisioning, which again, as Simon said, uh, goes to the question of whether the banks uh, has enough capital to provision as much as they should. Okay, uh, so uh, both of you just wanted to come in on, on yeah. that. <coughs> I don't need, do I? No, I, I have the, yeah. I, I, I think it, I need it now. Okay, um, so I, I think what is an added um, issue in this debate is that Lending banks, uh, yes, we have the NPL portfolio, and you know, hopefully at some stage we'll get a proper NPL market in it, etc. The issue is not so much the NPLs as the performing loans, um, because you can actually ask yourself questions about performing loans. Are they really performing? They have been mispriced in a low interest rate environment. So I think you should ask yourself about the banking model and about the sort of that issue as well within this whole discussion on whether level two or you know NPLs. So I think that's something to remember. All right, Paolo. Just yes, on, on this issue, of, if I may comment on both uh, uh, Simon and Nicholas on, on the issue of. Uh, uh, the comparison. Uh, we, we know that it's a bit of a stretch, but we took MPLs uh, to be the, you know, the worst category in, in the balance sheet, and some of the indicators that come out of the paper are uh, prima facie, uh, you know, similar. Uh, that, 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 does that prove something? No, it doesn't prove anything. The, the belts uh, that uh, we, that I showed in the, in the, in the pictures uh, do not prove anything. There is no issue. It is very difficult to, to disentangle, uh, you know, L3 type L2 from uh, genuine L1, L1. but uh, the, the issue of uh, 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 saying that uh, L2 and L3 are performing whereas MPLs are non-performing is sort of begs the question because the issue is that there is a lot of opacity in there uh, on a share of these assets and you don't know exactly what's going on. Saying that MPLs do not yield uh, a, a return, uh, true, but uh, the same goes for some of these assets. I haven't been able to put my hands on a series of returns of these assets. So uh, the issue remains that they are opaque, that they are illiquid, and that if somebody forced banks to sell them, uh, possibly uh, high losses would materialize. Remember the issue that uh, uh, we brought out in, in the presentation that uh, a fair value is not a liquidation value. It is a fair value, rightly so. I mean, that is the way it should be. But uh, if, if, you if you tackle MPLs, for instance, and you decide that those need to be disposed of at all costs, of course you're going to get a liquidation price. So the issue of some uh, MPLs going to the market and fetching, say, uh, 20 cents on the euro of gross book value uh, uh, relative to 40 cents on the euro of, uh, of, of book, uh, net book value doesn't imply that there is another provision. Okay. Um, no, sorry, so um, unless uh, there are other interventions from the panelists, I think we may need to 
bring this to a close. Is there, are there other questions from, from the audience? We could maybe take one, one more question. Um, Francesco, yeah. Just a simple answer. I mean, if a lot of uh, L2 is really L1, why is it in L2 and not in L1? Uh, I mean, that, that there should be an incentive to put in L1 as much as possible. So why is uh, this not the case? Okay, uh, Nicholas. Uh, Others here are more are more competent than I am, but I think the simple answer is that this is what the accounting standard says. Mm -hmm. There is a very strict definition of what you can put in L1, and it's not a definition which is based on really the level of certainty uh, or uh, uh, uncertainty you have on the valuation. It's on the legal features of the asset and whether it's traded or not. I think that, okay. slide, that was on the yeah. slide that was pre presented okay. earlier. So can... Sorry, so I'm going to bring this yeah, to so close. Then it's not that they should be in L1. You don't agree with the definition of L1 and L2. Oh, uh, I, <laughs> All right, I, I uh, think, you know... Uh, accounting details, we will need to... No, no, but the accounting, accounting and economic analysis or prudential analysis are two different things. I think it's perfectly justified for the accounting mm -hmm. standard to make that to establish that boundary between a, a traded asset and an asset that is similar to a traded asset, and that's the difference between L1 and L2, it's a very good difference. Uh, so I would not be in favor of erasing that difference. Now, we can discuss whether for prudential reasons we should go into more granularity and having you know level 1.5 and level 2.5, and in a way the discussion hinted at that direction. I think you have to understand how complicated it would be accounting-wise to have five levels instead of three. Three is already pretty difficult to manage. So I think here it is an old, age-old debate between accounting and prudential supervision. Accounting is not just done for prudential supervisors. Okay. With that, uh, let me bring this to a close. Thank our panelists, uh, Paolo and the team from Bank of Italy for producing the paper, but also Tresina, Nicholas, Simon. Martin, who has left, uh, and thanking you for uh, participating and engaging in this debate. Thank you very much, and see you next time.